0: Chapter 33 of Peter Simple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Sylvia M.B. in Washington State. Peter Simple by Frederick Marriott. Chapter 33 Another set to between the captain and first lieutenant. Cutting out expedition. Mr. Chuck's mistaken. He dies like a gentleman. "'Swinburne begins his account of the Battle of St. Vincent. "'We had not been more than a week under the Danish island of St. Thomas, "'when we discovered a brig close in shore. "'We made all sail and chase, and soon came within a mile and a half of the shore, "'when she anchored under a battery which opened its fire upon us. "'Their elevation was too great, and several shots passed over us and between our masts. "'I once met with a very remarkable circumstance.' observed captain kearney three guns were fired at a frigate i was on board of from a battery all at the same time the three shots cut away the three topsail ties and down came all our topsail yards upon the cap at the same time that the frenchmen might not suppose that they had taken such good aim we turned up our hands to reef topsails and by the time that the men were off the yards the ties were spliced and the topsails run up again mr phillett could not stand this most enormous fib and replied very odd indeed captain kearney but i have known a stranger circumstance we had put in the powder to the four guns on the main deck when we were fighting the danish gunboats in a frigate i was in and as the men withdrew the rammer a shot from the enemy entered the muzzle and completed the loading of each gun we fired their own shot back upon them and this occurred three times running "'Upon my word,' replied Captain Kearney, who had his glass upon the battery, "'I think you must have dreamt that circumstance, Mr. Phillott. "'Not more than you did about the topsail ties, Captain Kearney.' Captain Kearney, at that time, had the long glass in his hand, holding it up over his shoulder. A shot from the battery whizzed over his head, and took the glass out of his hand, shivering it to pieces. "'That's once,' said Captain Kearney, very coolly but will you pretend that that could ever happen three times running they might take my head off or my arm next time but not another glass whereas the topsail ties might be cut by three different shot but give me another glass mr simple i am certain that this vessel is a privateer what think you mr o'brien i am every bit of your opinion captain kearney replied o'brien and i think it would be a very pretty bit of practice to the ship's company to take her out from under that footy battery "'Starboard the helm, Mr. Fillett. Keep away four points, and then we will think of it to-night.' The frigate was now kept away and ran out of the fire of the battery. It was then about an hour before sunset, and in the West Indies the sun does not set as it does in the northern latitudes. There is no twilight. He descends in glory, surrounded with clouds of gold and rubies in their gorgeous tints, and once below the horizon all is dark.' "'As soon as it was dark, we hauled our wind offshore, "'and a consultation being held between the captain, Mr. Fillett, and O'Brien. "'The captain at last decided that the attempt should be made. "'Indeed, although cutting out is a very serious affair, "'as you combat under every disadvantage, "'still the mischief done to our trade by the fast-sailing privateers "'was so great in the West Indies "'that almost every sacrifice was warrantable for the interests of the country. "'Still, Captain Kearney, although a brave and prudent officer,' one who calculated chances and who would not risk his men without he deemed that necessity imperiously demanded that such should be done was averse to this attack from his knowledge of the hay in which the brig was anchored and although mr Fillett and o'brien both were of the opinion that it should be a night attack captain kearney decided otherwise he considered that although the risk might be greater yet the force employed would be more consolidated and that those who would hold back in the night dare not do so during the day Moreover, that the people on shore in the battery, as well as those in the privateer, would be on the alert all night, and not expecting an attack during the day, would be taken off their guard. It was therefore directed that everything should be in preparation during the night, and that the boats should shove off before daylight, and row in shore, concealing themselves behind some rocks under the cliffs which formed the cape upon one side of the harbor, and if not discovered, remain there till noon, at which time it was probable that the privateer's men would be on shore and the vessel might be captured without difficulty it is always a scene of much interest on board a man-of-war when preparations are made for an expedition of this description and as the reader may not have been witness to them it may perhaps be interesting to describe them the boats of of men-of-war have generally two crews the common boats crew which are selected so as not to take away the most useful men from the ship and the service or fighting boats crew which are selected from the very best men on board the coxswains of the boats are the most trustworthy men in the ship and on this occasion have to see that their boats are properly equipped the launch yawl first and second cutters were the boats appointed for the expedition they all carried guns mounted upon slides which ran fore and aft between the men after the boats were hoisted out the guns were lowered down into them and shipped in the bows of the boats the arm chests were next handed in which contained the cartridges and ammunition the shut were put into the bottom of the boats and so far they were all ready the oars of the boats were fitted to pull with grommets upon iron thole pins that they might make little noise and might swing fore and aft without falling overboard when the boats pulled alongside the privateer a breaker or two that is small casks holding about seven gallons each of water was put into each boat and also the men's allowance of spirits in case they should be detained by any unforeseen circumstances The men belonging to the boats were fully employed in looking after their arms, some fitting their flints to their pistols, others and the major part of them sharpening their cutlasses at the grindstone, or with a file borrowed from the armorer. All were busy, and all merry. The very idea of going into action is a source of joy to an English sailor, and more jokes are made, more merriment excited at that time than any other. Then, as it often happens, that one or two of the service boat's crew may be on the sick-list, Urgent solicitations are made by others that they may supply their places. The only parties who appear at all grave are those who are to remain in the frigate, and not share in the expedition. There is no occasion to order the boats to be manned, for the men are generally in long before they are piped away. Indeed, one would think that it was a party of pleasure, instead of danger and of death upon which they were about to proceed. Captain Kearney selected the officers who were to have the charge of the boats, he would not trust any of the midshipmen on so dangerous a service. He said that he had known so many occasions in which their rashness and foolhardiness had spoilt an expedition. He therefore appointed Mr. Phillett, the first lieutenant, to the launch, O'Brien to the yawl, the master to the first, and Mr. Chucks, the boatswain, to the second cutter. Mr. Chucks was much pleased with the idea of having the command of a boat, and asked me to come with him, to which I consented although I had intended, as usual, to have gone with O'Brien. About an hour before daylight we ran the frigate to within a mile and a half of the shore, and the boats shoved off. The frigate then wore round and stood out in the offing, that she might at daylight be at such a distance as not to excite any suspicion that our boats were sent away, while we and the boats pulled quietly inshore. We were not a quarter of an hour before we arrived at the cape forming one side of the bay, and were well secreted among the cluster of rocks which was underneath. Our oars were laid in, the boats painters made fast, and orders given for the strictest silence. The rocks were very high, and the boats were not to be seen without anyone should come to the edge of the precipice. And even then they would in all probability have been supposed to have been rocks. The water was as smooth as glass, and when it was broad daylight the men hung listlessly over the sides of the boats, looking at the corals below. "'and watching the fish as they glided between. "'I can't see, Mr. Simple,' said Mr. Chucks to me in an undertone, "'that I will think well of this expedition, "'and I have an idea that some of us will lose the number of our mess. "'After a calm comes a storm, and how quiet is everything now. "'But I'll take off my greatcoat, for the sun is hot already. coxen give me my jacket.' "'Mr. Chucks had put on his greatcoat, but not his jacket underneath, "'which he had left on one of the guns on the main deck.' all ready to change as soon as the heavy dew had gone off. The coxswain handed him the jacket, and Mr. Chucks threw off his greatcoat to put it on. But when it was opened, it proved that by mistake he had taken away the jacket, surmounted by two small epaulets, belonging to Captain Kearney, which the captain's Steward, who had taken it out to brush, had also laid upon the same gun. "'By all the nobility of England!' cried Mr. Chucks. "'I have taken away the captain's jacket by mistake. "'Here is a pretty mess!' "'If I put on my greatcoat, I shall be dead with sweating. "'If I put on no jacket, I shall be roasted brown. "'But if I put on the captain's jacket, I shall be considered disrespectful.' "'The men in the boats tittered, and Mr. Fillett, who was in the launch next to us, "'turned round to see what was the matter. "'O'Brien was sitting in the stern-sheets of the launch with the first lieutenant, "'and I leaned over and told them, "'By the powers! I don't see why the captain's jacket will be at all hurt by Mr. Chuck's putting it on,' replied O'Brien.' unless indeed a bullet were to go through it, and then it won't be any fault of Mr. Chucks.' "'No,' replied the first lieutenant, and if one did, the captain might keep the jacket, and swear that the bullet went round his body without wounding him. He'll have a good yarn to spin. So put it on, Mr. Chucks. You'll make a good mark for the enemy.' "'That I will stand the risk of with pleasure,' observed the boatswain to me, for the sake of being considered a gentleman. So here's on with it.' There was a general laugh when Mr. Chucks pulled on the captain's jacket and sank down in the stern-sheets of the cutter, with great complacency of countenance. One of the men in the boat that we were in thought proper, however, to continue his laugh a little longer than Mr. Chucks considered necessary, who, leaning forward, thus addressed him. "'I say, Mr. Webber, I beg leave to observe to you in the most delicate manner in the world, just to hint to you that it is not the custom to laugh at your superior officer.' "'I mean just to insinuate that you are a damned impudent son of a sea-cook, "'and if we both live and do well I will prove to you "'that if I am to be laughed at in a boat with the captain's jacket on, "'that I am not to be laughed at on board the frigate "'with the boatswain's rattan in my fist. "'So look out, my hearty, for squalls when you come on the forecastle, "'for I'll be damned if I don't make you see more stars than God Almighty ever made. "'Cut more capers than all the dancing-masters in France, mark my words.' you burk goo eating pea soup swilling trousers scrubbing son of a bitch mr chucks having at the end of this oration raised his voice above the pitch required by the exigency of the service was called to order by the first lieutenant and again sank back into the stern-sheets with all the importance and authoritative show peculiarly appertaining to a pair of epaulets we waited behind the rocks until noonday without being discovered by the enemy so well were we concealed we had already sent an officer who, carefully hiding himself by lying down on the rocks, had several times reconnoitred the enemy. Boats were passing and repassing continually from the privateer to the shore, and it appeared that they went on shore full of men, and returned with only one or two, so that we were in great hopes that we should find but few men to defend the vessel. Mr. Phillip looked at his watch, held it up to O'Brien to prove that he had complied exactly with the orders he had received from the captain, and then gave the word to get the boats under way. The painters were cast off by the bowmen, the guns were loaded and primed, the men seized their oars, and in two minutes we were clear of the rocks and drawn up in a line within a quarter of a mile from the harbour's mouth, and not half a mile from the privateer brig. We rowed as quickly as possible, but we did not cheer until the enemy fired the first gun, which he did from a quarter unexpected, as we entered the mouth of the harbour, with our Union Jack trailing in the water over our stern, for it was a dead calm it appeared that at the low point under the cliffs at each side of the little bay they had raised a water battery of two guns each one of these guns laden with grape-shot was now fired at the boats but the elevation was too low and although the water was ploughed up to within five yards of the launch no injury was received we were equally fortunate in the discharge of the other three guns two of which we passed so quickly that they were not aimed sufficiently forward so that their shot fell astern and the other although the shot fell among us did no further injury than cutting in half two of the oars of the first cutter. In the meantime, we had observed that the boats had shoved off from the privateer as soon as they had perceived us, and had returned to her laden with men. The boats had been dispatched a second time, but had not yet returned. They were now about the same distance from the privateer as were our boats, and it was quite undecided which of us would be first on board." O'Brien, perceiving this, pointed out to Mr. Phillett that we should first attack the boats, and afterwards board on the side to which they pulled, as in all probability there would be an opening left in the boarding nettings, which were tied up in the yard-arms, and presented a formidable obstacle to our success. Mr. Phillett agreed with O'Brien. He ordered the bowmen to lay in their oars and keep the guns pointed ready to fire at the word given, and desiring the other men to pull their best every nerve every muscle was brought into play by our anxious and intrepid seamen when within about twenty yards of the vessel and also of the boats the orders were given to fire the carronade of the launch poured out round and grape so well directed that one of the french boats sank immediately and the musket balls with which our smaller guns were loaded did great execution among their men in one more minute with three cheers from our sailors we were all alongside together english and french boats pell mell and a most determined close conflict took place the french fought desperately and as they were overpowered they were reinforced by those from the privateer who could not look on and behold their companions requiring their assistance without coming to their aid some jumped down into our boats from the chains into the midst of our men others darted cold shot at us either to kill us or to sink our boats and thus did one of the most desperate hand-to-hand conflicts take place that ever was witnessed but it was soon decided in our favour for we were the stronger party and the better armed and when all opposition was over we jumped into the privateer and found not a man left on board only a large dog who flew at o'brien's throat as he entered the port don't kill him said o'brien as the sailors hastened to his assistance only take away his gripe the sailors disengaged the dog and o'brien led him up to a gun saying by jesus my boy you are my prisoner but although we had possession of the privateer our difficulties as it will prove were by no means over we were now exposed not only to the fire of the two batteries at the harbour mouth which we had to pass but also to that of the battery at the bottom of the bay which had fired at the frigate in the meantime we were very busy in cutting the cable lowering the topsails and taking the wounded men on board the privateer from out of the boats all this was however but the work of a few minutes most of the frenchmen were killed our own wounded amounted to only nine seamen and mr chucks the boatswain who was shot through the body apparently with little chance of surviving as mr Phillott observed the captain's epaulets had made him a mark for the enemy and he had fallen in his borrowed plumes as soon as they were all on board and laid on the deck for there were as near as i can recollect about fourteen wounded frenchmen as well as our own two ropes were got out forwards The boats were manned, and we proceeded to tow the brig out of the harbour. It was a dead calm, and we made but little way. But our boat's crew, flushed with victory, cheered and rallied and pulled with all their strength. The enemy, perceiving that the privateer was taken, and the French boats drifting empty upon the harbour, now opened their fire upon us, and with great effect. Before we had towed abreast of the two water batteries, we had received three shots between wind and water from the other batteries, and the sea was pouring fast into the vessel. I had been attending to poor Mr. Chucks, who lay on the starboard side near the wheel, the blood flowing from his wound and tracing its course down the planks of the deck to a distance of some feet from where he lay. He appeared very faint, and I tied my handkerchief round his body so as to stop the effusion of blood, and brought him some water with which I bathed his face and poured some into his mouth. He opened his eyes wide and looked at me. "'Ah, Mr. Simple,' said he faintly is it you is it all over with me but it could not be better could it how do you mean inquired i why have i not fallen dressed like an officer and a gentleman said he referring to the captain's jacket and epaulettes i'd sooner die now with this dress on than to recover to put on the boatswain's uniform i feel quite happy he pressed my hand and then closed his eyes again from weakness we were now nearly abreast of the two batteries on the points the guns of which had been trained so as to bear upon our boats that were towing out the brig the first shot went through the bottom of the launch and sank her fortunately all the men were saved but as she was the boat that towed next to the brig great delay occurred in getting the others clear of her and taking the brig again in tow the shot now poured in thick and the grape became very annoying still our men gave way cheering at every shot fired and we had nearly passed the batteries with trifling loss when we perceived that the brig was so full of water that she could not swim many minutes longer, and that it would be impossible to tow her alongside of the frigate. Mr. Phillett, under these circumstances, decided that it would be useless to risk more lives, and that the wounded should be taken out of the brig and the boat should pull away from the ship. He desired me to get the wounded men into the cutter which he sent along, and then to follow the other boats. I made all the haste I could, not wishing to be left behind, "'and as soon as all our wounded men were in the boats, "'I went to Mr. Chuck's to remove him. "'He appeared somewhat revived, "'but would not allow us to remove him. "'My dear Mr. Simple,' said he, "it is of no use. "'I can never recover it, and I prefer dying here. "'I entreat you not to move me. "'If the enemy take possession of the brig before she sinks, "'I shall be buried with military honours. "'If they do not, I shall at least die in the dress of a gentleman. "'Hasten away as fast as you can, "'before you lose more men.' "'Here I stay. That's decided.' I expostulated with him. But at that time two boats full of men appeared, pulling out of the harbour to the brig. The enemy had perceived that our boats had deserted her and were coming to take possession. I had therefore no time to urge Mr. Chucks to change his resolution, and not wishing to force a dying man. I shook his hand and left him. It was with some difficulty I escaped, for the boats had come up close to the brig.' "'They chased me a little while, but the yawl and the cutter, turning back to my assistance, "'they gave up the pursuit. "'On the whole, this was a very well-arranged and well-conducted expedition. "'The only man lost was Mr. Chucks, for the wounds of the others were none of them mortal. "'Captain Kearney was quite satisfied with our conduct, "'and so was the Admiral when it was reported to him. "'Captain Kearney did indeed grumble a little about his jacket, "'and sent for me to inquire why I had not taken it off Mr. Chucks and brought it on board.' as i did not choose to tell him the exact truth i replied that i could not disturb a dying man and that the jacket was so saturated with blood that he never could have worn it again which was the case at all events you might have brought away my epaulettes replied he but you youngsters think of nothing but gormandizing." i had the first watch that night when swinburne the quartermaster came up to me and asked me all the particulars of the affair for he was not in the boats well said he That Mr. Chucks appeared to be a very good potion in his way. If he could only have kept his rattan a little quiet. He was a smart fellow and knew his duty. We had just such another killed in our ship, in the action off Cape St. Vincent. What? Were you in that action? replied I. Yes, I was, and belonged to the captain, Lord Nelson's ship. Well, then, suppose you tell me all about it? Why, Mr. Simple, do you see... "'I've no objection to spin you a yarn now and then,' replied Swinburne, "'but as Mr. Chucks used to say, "'allow me to observe, in the most delicate manner in the world, "'that I perceive that the man who has charge of your hammock "'and slings you a clean one now and then "'has very often a good glass of grog for his yarns, "'and I did not see but that mine are as well worth a glass of grog as his. "'So they are, Swinburne, and better, too, "'and I promise you a good stiff one tomorrow evening.' "'That will do, sir. Now, then, I'll tell you all about it, and more about it, too, than most can, for I know how the action was brought about.' I hove the log, marked the board, and sat down abaft on the signal-chest with Swinburne, who commenced his narrative as follows. "'You must know, Mr. Simple, that when the English fleet came down the Mediterranean, after the vacuation of Corsica, they did not muster more than seventeen sail of the line, while the Spanish fleet, from Farrell and Cartagena, had joined company at cadiz amounted to near thirty sir john jervis had the command of our fleet at the time but as the dons did not seem at all inclined to come out and have a brush with us almost two to one sir john left sir w parker with six sail of the line to watch the spanish beggars while he went into lisbon with the remainder of the fleet to water and refit now you see mr simple portugal was at that time what they calls neutral that is to say she didn't meddle at all in the affair been friends with both parties and just as willing to supply fresh beef and water to the spaniards as to the english if so be the spaniards had come out to axe for it which they darned the portuguese and the english have always been the best of friends because we can't get no port wine anywhere else and they can't get nobody else to buy it off of them so the portuguese gave up their arsenal at lisbon for the use of the english and there we kept all our stores under the charge of that old daredevil, sir isaac coffin now it so happened that one of the clerks in old sir isaac's office a portuguese chap had been some time before that in the office of the spanish ambassador he was a very smart sort of chap and served as interpreter and the commissioner put great faith in him but how did you learn all this swinburne why i tell you mr simple i steered the yawl as coxswain and when admirals and captains talk in the stern-sheets they very often forget that the coxswain is close behind them i only learnt half of it that way the rest i put together when i compared logs with the admiral's steward who of course heard a great deal now and then the first i heard of it was when old sir john called out to sir isaac after the second bottle i say sir isaac who killed the spanish messenger not i by god replied sir isaac i only left for dead and then they both laughed and so did nelson who was sitting with them well mr simple it was reported to sir isaac that his clerk was often seen taking memorandums of the different orders given to the fleet particularly those as to there being no wasteful expenditure of his majesty's stores upon which sir isaac goes to the admiral and requests that the man might be discharged now old sir john was a sly old fox and he answered not so commissioner Perhaps we may catch them in their own trap. So the Admiral sits down and calls for a pen and ink, and he flourishes out a long letter to the Commissioner, stating that all the stores of the fleet were expended, representing as how it would be impossible to go to sea without a supply, and wishing to know when the Commissioner expected more transports from England. He also said that if the Spanish fleet were now to come out from Cadiz, it would be impossible for him to protect Sir W. Parker with his six sail of the line who was watching the Spanish fleet, as he could not quit the port in his present condition. To this letter the commissioner answered, that from the last accounts he thought that in the course of six weeks or two months they might receive supplies from England, but that sooner than that was impossible. These letters were put in the way of the damned Portuguese spy-clerk, who copied them and was seen that evening to go into the house of the Spanish ambassador. Sir John then sent a message to Farrell, that's a small town on the Portuguese coast to the southward, with a dispatch to Sir William Parker, desiring him to run away to Cape St. Vincent and decoy the Spanish fleet there, in case they should come out after him. Well, Mr. Simple, so far do you see the train was well laid? The next thing to do was to watch the Spanish ambassador's house and see if he sent away any dispatches. Two days after the letters had been taken to him by this rascal of a clerk, the spanish ambassador sent away two messengers one for cadiz and the other for madrid which is the town where the king of spain lives the one to cadiz was permitted to go but the one to madrid was stopped by the directions of the admiral and this job was confided to the commissioner sir isaac who settled it somehow or another and this was the reason why the admiral called out to him i say sir isaac who killed the messenger they brought back his despatches by which they found out that advice had been sent to the spanish admiral i forget his name something like magazine informing him of the supposed crippled state of our squadron sir john taking it for granted that the spaniards would not lose an opportunity of taking six sail of the line more english ships than they had ever taken in their lives waited a few days to give them time and then sailed from lisbon for cape st vincent where he joined Sir W. Parker and fell in with the Spaniards, sure enough, and a pretty drubbing we gave them. Now, it's not everybody that could tell you all that, Mr. Simple. Well, but now for the action, Swinburne. Lord bless you, Mr. Simple. it's now past seven bells, and I can't fight the Battle of St. Vincent in half an hour. Besides which, it's well worth another glass of grog to hear all about the battle well you should have one swinburne only don't forget to tell it to me swinburne and i then separated and in less than an hour afterwards i was dreaming of despatches sir john jervis sir isaac coffin and spanish messengers end of chapter thirty three